0: All right, guys. On today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we have another segment of real talk with real traders. Today, I have with me Ed Kurtz, aka Notional Ed, from the Discord. Um, Ed, actually, I don't. You've been in here for uh, some number of months. I honestly, I lose track. And uh, I yeah. noticed that you know, last year, you know, with the, the the rising interest rate environment, we're kind of in a different paradigm, and uh, you've been very. Uh, prolific with your contributions regarding the fixed income channels and talking about T bills and educating others. And uh, as we were saying before, I myself and am, am, am a tourist in this space. I mean, we do like the six month T bill ladder, something very straightforward. But um, mm-hmm. you know, again, I'm interested to kind of learn about that, give people a chance to to learn about you, understand your journey, uh, trading and everything. So with that, uh, Ed, welcome to uh, the podcast.
1: David, thank you. I appreciate the uh, invite, and thank you for the kind introduction. I appreciate it, and it's a real pro- privilege to be here doing a second podcast with you. Oh, that's right.
0: Um, who can forget that was a good one? If, yeah, if you yeah, guys are, of you know, don't, don't know, improv- know uh, mm-hmm. the hedging roundtable. So this is yeah, the number, second appearance, number,
1: number ninety-eight, something like and,
0: that. Yeah, it's a little out of order it, now. But you got to find anyone who it.
1: may. Uh, I'm sorry uh I- anyone who may be confused looking for my prior episode number 98 you did some shuffling in your your podcast so number 98 is not really in the position of number 98 it's elsewhere. yeah it's, it's like
0: after a so hundred something it's not yeah and that's but cool it's not hedging round table that's the one okay yep yep but uh it,
1: no it was on it was on it was on hedging so anyways yeah. episode 98 yes it is out there you just have to search for it a little bit in your podcast stream and, uh, and hey, why don't they, you um give us a little bit of
0: your background uh, kind of how you yeah. you know your your overall trading journey, um, how where yeah. you came from, how you so got to where you
1: are. I'll do that and I'll try to be as concise as possible. Um, so I'm I'm in my early 60s. I started my financial services career after I graduated from college with an economics degree. I went into the insurance business where I was uh, in the early 80s and did that for about seven years or so, and then. Um, In 1987, a month before the 87 crash, I obtained my series seven license, which is the broker license, and started doing brokerage work in addition to the insurance business. Did that for about 12 more years after that. I had an independent insurance agency that I ended up acquiring along the way uh, from other people and uh, sold it after being in it for about 17 years total. I became a stockbroker. I won't mention with who, but um, it was not the deal that I was cut. So within a year or so, I had left that. I'd already obtained some brokerage management licenses and became a brokerage manager and ended up day trading, uh, ended up managing some day trading rooms in the late 90s when day trading became extremely popular. Um, In the late 90s, that kind of was still hot, and I transitioned into writing some market commentary for a now defunct financial website. Uh, that was like uh, Internet Wave 1.0. It was the first dot com boom, and a lot of companies blew up. And as the market topped out and fell from 2000 to 2001, a lot of these little sites that had popped up evaporated. And um, all along the while, I had been trading my own account, saving chronically for now, like maybe 20 years, uh, investing into mutual funds monthly on a dollar cost average basis. And as I started making more money, rates, of course, were much higher back then and sporadically because they go up and down. But I I would typically get six, seven plus percent on AAA rated guaranteed stuff. And I would basically save my money during the year. I had my, my fixed income thing uh, a building where I just put money in fixed income and then I'd either invested into an asset or just use the interest off of it to further grow my dollar cost averaging. And so I did that for quite a while. And then in the 2000s, I had some successful inde- uh, investment experiences with some massive swing trades and banks and then real estate investment trust twice. Uh, and then in around the time of the the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, the market started blowing up. I had bunches of money in fixed income, about 80 percent of my assets, reinvesting the cash into, into equities and, and, and then my trading account. And um, I, I got I, I proactively got out of some of it. I stopped out of some of it and some of it I wrote all the way down. So I did experience pain in the drawdown. Uh, the bulk of my assets, like I said, were in fixed income. Fixed income had dropped from five, six percent kind of rates where they are now. What kind of instruments?
0: Was it bonds, corporate bonds? Yeah. So ordinary? I was
1: back then. I was doing, I was doing CDs and municipal bonds and a very small amount of corporate bonds because I didn't totally trust the extra yield I was getting from the corporate corporate bonds. It wasn't worth it. And back then, CDs paid more than Treasuries. Treasuries have typically paid less than CDs. Um, and that's not always the case now, although it's starting to normalize again. But typically, at, at the current time, Treasuries are yielding more. Backing up into what where I came from. So I, I basically, as my fixed income quickly matured or was called, I was being put tons of money. And I didn't really know what to do with it. Because at that point, after following the market and the economy for decades, and understanding the paper money system that we all operate under, I was very skeptical about the rescue plans that the, the Fed had come up with and all the funny money they were pumping in to save everything. And at first, I thought, I'm never going to trust the paper money system again. I need to go find an alternative asset. And there was depressed real estate right in front of my face. So I started acquiring distressed real estate, 60 to 70% off of where it was a year or two before, thinking I'll just earn this 12 or 13% return cash on cash. And eventually this real estate will recover. I will roll out this money from real estate back into what I was doing before because rates will eventually normalize. It's taken 15 years for that to happen. So that plan didn't exactly work. However, the real estate situation did work well. And I made great returns on that. And I've been pulling money out of that real estate sector since late 2020, a a big chunk in 2021. And I just completed another about third of my property sales about two months ago. And, and now I have about a third of it left. I managed all that real estate myself all this time. I got up to 17 units. I'm down to six now. So it's still part of what I do. And the rest of what I do is managing my own money and, of course, spending time in these discords where I really enjoy myself. So, oh, and I'm sorry, after 2008 and 2009, when the whole mortgage thing was blown up, I actually obtained a mortgage license thinking I'll step into that business because everyone that was doing it has been decimated and blown out. It's going to be a wide open field. I can take advantage of that. I did it for two or three years. It's the uh, ugliest, dirtiest part of financial services that I've ever been involved in. So additionally, on the so I backed out of that. But it was great knowledge because I was dealing with the real estate. So it was another component of financial services that I, I became steeped in. And again, along the way, I was doing financial planning and budgeting and that type of thing related to the investment world that I was operating as well. So that's a brief uh, background on myself, and I'll turn the mic back over to you.
0: When did um, when and how did
1: options enter the picture for you? So, options uh, while I was studying for the Series Seven in 1987, options were fairly new. I don't know exactly when uh, OEX options started. OEX was it is the S and P 100, and a vi- originally. That's where all the option activity took place was in the OEX pit. Uh, Over time, that has been minimized. Now it's the SPX pit that's replaced it, which is, of course, the S&P 500. And were you trading Uh, these when they were introduced? No, I I didn't because I was so new to it and I didn't really have much money back then. I was kind of a, a student in poverty, if you will. And I was fascinated by the options. I did a self-study program for six months for the Series 7 license. It's probably like 2,000 pages of info. And there was a whole section on options. I'm like, oh, my God, if I ever get money, this is an incredible looking opportunity. I think there's some things I could do here. And then over the years, I kind of, you know, life goes on and things fade away and I'm doing my own thing. And I never really paid options too much of attention. Prior to the 2008 crash, I was selling puts to initiate a position. So I'd sell an at the money or slightly in the money option or even slightly out of the money option to get into a stock just to improve my cost basis right off the bat. What I didn't have at that time is any other skill. So, you know, we all want the stock. We think that we sell a put on until we get put the stock and it might be in a disastrous time situation. And so I had things put to me without really knowing how to manage. So that became a sharp double-edged sword, but I rolled with it and it was okay. And then again, that was my option trading experience until around 2016 or 17, where I discovered the tasty world. All right. And, similar and, time and, Yeah, I found in and, 2017. And, yeah. And I, like everyone else, jumped into the tasty method, which, you know, like everything, David, there's good and bad with everything. So- There was a lot of good there. I did all of it. I did strangles. I did ratio spreads. I did iron condors. I did their little name brand trades, which I don't have to mention, you know, but Liz and Jenny's kind of little things, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like a typical tasting experience. I I, I started with a $15,000 account just to cut my teeth. I turned the $15,000 into almost $25,000 in less than a year. I added... 30 something more thousand dollars. So I'm like, okay, I can pick this up and immediately ran into a a couple of roll my strangle, roll my strangle situations and got very turned off by the whole thing. And um, that's when I discovered Tasty's um, Facebook page where you and a lot of the other financial guru and celebrities hung out. (laughs)
0: I guess you could and say that.
1: I found your site there. And in late, around October of 2021 is when I entered your site, October, November, something like that. And again, I had the premium selling experience, but you had a whole different dynamic with all your premium ex- ex- expectancies and how to build a book and all that. And, and a lot of your dynamic was super interesting to me. And I entered right as the market was topping your site. Late 21, and I learning, yeah,
0: 22, exactly. And, and,
1: and yeah, it was it was tough, but I entered in a period where everyone made a zillion dollars in 2021 because the yeah. market was straight up and selling puts was like literally easier than printing money. And then I'm learning, learning, learning. And I, I, I use myself, I'm a turtle. When I, I learn, I'm very slow. I learn and then I implement very slowly. I am not in a hurry to hurry up and go make a bunch of money real quick. So I saw what people were inadvertently doing, which was over levering themselves with your strategy that can be a 2% strategy or a 30% strategy, right. 50% strategy. And of course, humans being humans, most humans want to make that big fat return real quick. And they only look at the upside. They have no idea the downside. Because I was just starting to sell my properties, I knew I had to find something that would work for me besides just putting it in at SPY, at you know, 470 or 480 with a PE of 28 in the market, super overstretched. So studying your methods um, and started basically just selling spy puts up to the notional value of my account. And I can get into details of that, but that was what my go-to strategy was. And I continued learning in your site. And then um, these market downdrafts occurred. And I watched people encounter pain because they were over levered. Oftentimes, not even having a clue what that even meant. And at that point, you were kind of changing the dynamic of your Discord, where you, at first you just let everyone in and you had a flock of people all the time. And it was, sorry, but I'm going to use my own term, and I see it in every Discord, where people are just allowed in. There's chaos. Brand new people come in. They want to learn real quickly. You have your old seasoned people, and it's a weird, chaotic mixture. Um, so... Then you basically say you have to test to post. So I didn't test. And at that point, I had found Bobby's Trader Nerd site. So I went into there. I'm sorry, I'm doing a little pump there, but sure, sure. it's part of my journey. And then um, I, that's where I learned the 111. And I like the 111 because it has the built-in put-debit spread, which is some shock absorber protection and some built-in downdraft. And along my journey, that looked more appealing just than just selling naked. So I started running um, a lot of SPY 111, and then I elevated right into ES. I just went right into ES, but did it on a very small scale because I became aware, David, in your Discord, I became aware of what leverage really was and how we can either lever or unlever our accounts to different magnitudes, depending on our risk tolerance, if we understand what we're doing. So the notional thing where I have, say, a $100,000 account, for example, I only wanted to sell up to three SPY puts that with 335 strikes, for instance. I'm going to use that as an example because sure. that would be about $100,000 worth of notional if the market blows up, goes to 335, and I get put the SPY. I'm basically a uh secured, basically. Yeah, I'm committing to owning Spy twenty seven percent down plus the one or two percent or whatever. I took in in premium from the outset. And I was fine with that. I wasn't greedy, just looking at replacing the income from the the real estate I was selling and not lose money. That was my main mission. Don't lose the money. You just spent thirteen years of hard work building. So, and I've knockwood been successful on that. I haven't lost money. I'm not a giant return generator. Um, And I won't get into that. I'm going to back out and just finish my my option thing. So I was in, uh, and I'm still in Trader Nerds. I I have my own room there, Notional Ed's Journey. Um, I have been a moderator there since, I think, around June of 2022. And even before then, I was kind of the guy that greeted everyone, took them around, introduced them to everyone. And before then, you know, you asked me where my name came from earlier, the Notional Ed. Yeah. I was Ed Kay when I was in your room initially. And then when I went to Bobby's room, I was still Ed Kay. Well, along the way, you know, my nature was to understand that leverage because of what I learned in your site, I understood what leverage meant. And I saw that like 80 or 90% of the people had no clue they they were levered up. So I saw a lot of people trading 40, 80, 100, 200, $300,000 accounts and being levered up like 20 or 30 times on it. And not having a clue. So I, and these periods of stress would come out I'm like, you're overlevered, you're overlevered. you got you need to take risk off. This is too much. And a lot of times people would thank me and a lot of times when people to f, tell me to f off and go I my own business. So it, it all of my information dissemination has always been greeted with great joy and irritation. So I'm kind of either welcomed with a smile or people don't really always like to hear my voice. So, After a while of of the market ridiculous volatility that we all know from 2022 and me running around, helping people and explaining the risk that they were in. And a lot of people heard the message and geared down their message and thanked me. Like we had a huge downdraft in May, I believe of 2020. People were thanking me like, man, I didn't get what you were talking about two weeks ago, but you just saved me. I'm like, great, I'm glad it worked for you. Congratulations. And I kind of like just hung out in, in that trader nerd world and did all I could to spread whatever knowledge I had from my multi- decade background in financial services and and it, it I got to share all the other stuff at will because people knew that and would ask questions. and so it was pretty exciting. and um I stayed there until, and I'm again, I say until I'm still there. but in around March of this year, and I, again, your site, David. Backpedal. I was in your site when you required testing to, to continue typing. I didn't test, but I stayed. And then you said, okay, you got to test to stay in. And I let my membership lapse. And then last uh this summer in 2023, I um I think it was May maybe. I just I was at a point in my learning journey where I needed to go back and study your material again. And even though I had your pages and all your calculators. I wanted to go back in. Re, I had I tested in because I wanted to hone my skills more. There were a lot of things that you were presenting that I could not conceptually assimilate myself because it was just too far advanced for me at my stage of learning. So I went back in, reinforced a lot of what I knew, learned some additional things. And I'm in your site now. Um You have come up we had an all about t-bills section you recently created a fixed income section right next to that where I'm doing some posting and um
0: and for those who uh when, mm-hmm. when Ed says site he means the discord it's just yes F-1. your
1: discord trade busters and in there under rabbit holes is an all about t bill section and right yeah, under yeah, we added the T bills fixed income yeah, yeah you've and then a lot of, mess hall in your mess hall section you have this rabbit holes where the, all about T bills is, and then right below the zero DTE thing is a fixed income area where I um am doing now live <laughs> <laughs> now
0: reside, um and mm-hmm. and and on that you know it's interesting because I wanted to talk up a little bit when you are talking about you know back in the nineties where you were kind of having a lot of your capital in the fixed income and then kind of reinvesting that into stocks. Mm -hmm. I think back then, especially without the proliferation of options, it was kind of like your cash was either in the fixed income or it was in in the stock, right? So it was one or the other. And there's an interesting dynamic now. And I I think you take advantage of this is where we can have our cash in the fixed income instruments. And this is recent because rates were zero for so long, but now Mm -hmm. we can earn the yield and essentially overlay our option strategies, and you're basically double-dipping on that capital. And uh, is that something that you kind of came to realize yourself, or is it because you have traded options, or because I talked about it, this idea of the Um, margining and all that, because that's a really kind of a new dynamic.
1: It it is a new dynamic, and it's the confluence of a, a multitude of things. First, my background in varied financial services, Stepping back before I graduated from school, uh, I was always into the markets. I didn't have any money. I found it fascinating. And so in the 70s, when I was just a teenager, um, I had saved up a little money and I bought one ounce of gold and sold it like six years later and made like 600 bucks on it. And that just hooked me into the whole investment world thing. That's what the fire really started. But David, even as a child, like we would get allowances and I would always save my allowance and my brother and sister never save theirs. So sometimes they would borrow their allowance for next Saturday from me earlier in the week and pay me back. Like, so I was a little banker back then, not because, and I wasn't charging interest. I didn't know what interest was, but I was a natural saver so it's weird because I run into people now and like some people are naturally savers, but most people are not. It's it's a foreign thing that they almost have to understand, like compound interest and how things can compound over decades. And you can use that rule of 72 to see how often your assets double at different right. interest rates and plan out your future, et cetera, et cetera. All that appealed to me. In the early um, 80s, Uh, in, In college, I had to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal and read it for one of my economics classes. And I kept that subscription for years afterwards and literally read the Wall Street Journal from cover to cover every day. Learning things, things were defined there, things were explained there. I was a very early viewer of CNN's Moneyline program, which at the time was the only cable channel that had a money program. I also watched the nightly business report on PBS. Both of those religiously. I just could not get enough information. And um, so it, it was that. And in the early 80s, pre-internet, I subscribed to uh, a, just a, a ton of Federal Reserve information. You could email them and they would send you all the reports they compiled. And I would get those in and try to read as many of those. And then I'd read fortune and money and da-da-da-da. I, I was just a massive consumer of anything market or financial planning related so the desire was there and then i went into business and then cultivated more of that and and then i got diverse as i've already explained and then somewhere around 2007 i believe is when portfolio margin came out i didn't use portfolio margin back then i was not sophisticated i didn't even know about portfolio margin and again i really wasn't trading options other than to sell puts to initiate positions so not very complex at all um and all right get me back on track i'm, I'm going you're to talk about how you can like I'm the idea of stacking the return
0: so i mean back then you know if you were just selling puts yeah i guess you if you had the money in i don't know if it was like bonds or something in the account you yeah. could basically sell the put and but prior to getting assigned, right, you, you, your broker, if you have portfolio margin, would only hold the margin required for the put, so you could yeah. earn the return from the put and earn the return. Yes, and so again, I don't know if this then, was something you were doing back then, but no, definitely something we're not, doing now. Not
1: directly. So back then, money market was money markets are paying five plus percent, kind of like they are now. And so I just leave my money parked in the money market account. I do essentially a cash secured put where the cash was in the money market account. And right. I was like a put premium. And unless I got put the stock, I was double dipping. That's it right. Okay. I knew I was double dipping, but it didn't look like a golden opportunity. Just like, like hey, I'm earning money on my cash. I'm going to do some trades. And I, I'd set aside. I'd, I'd carden off the cash needed for that X, Y, Z position if I got put to. It was sitting in the money market account, but I'd keep track. I never would go over the notional value of what I could afford to actually acquire with the puts I was on. So the notional thing was ingrained in me even before I understood what 1X notional meant.
0: But if you what's can. interesting and is then, you're mm-hmm. right. The put notional never went over your you know cash equivalent by whatever. But at the same time, the fact that you're earning a yield in kind of two places on the same capital and Mm -hmm. I I think you know we talk about you know this idea of notional risk because of leverage and Mm -hmm. leverage can be kind of like a scary thing but Mm -hmm. you were basically leveraging right it's just I was and the idea is that like mm -hmm. understanding in in that I
1: was stacking to you exactly
0: stacking the return and I I think this it's such a foreign concept and like the portfolio margin, all these words, portfolio, like margin, right? Because people think margin and I did this episode about stock margin versus option margin, right? You're, you weren't borrowing money, right? In fact, you were lending, right? Your cash was in the money market and yeah. you were earning a return. You weren't paying interest. And then yet you were collecting this yield from the puts. And right. so I think there's almost this like weird dichotomy where we want to say like, don't over leverage. Mm-hmm. Don't go above notional. Yeah, at the same time, <laughs> this is exactly what you're doing. So I I think once people can kind of cross that threshold or that hump, uh, you know, that knowledge gap, mm-hmm. it's it's like it really unlocks a lot of potential. And, and it's weird because it does uh, after oh eight oh nine. Like I I guess you know you you lived through I didn't, but you lived through this interest rate cycle, right? And yeah, like yeah. you've seen yeah. the rates yeah. go up, the rates come down, now the rates going up again, and so. It's- yeah when when I started investing rates were practically getting down zero. to really low to zero so there was never yeah. uh you know just the other day I mentioned discord we're in a weird uh, unprecedented time where options are so prolific and there's this all this talk about how options move the market and the tail wagging the dog mm-hmm. that combined with now this new rising interest rate or higher for longer and so right. we're kind of in a new paradigm um and uh how do you feel about that do you do you so, feel like that's like a new opportunity are you excited it, about it It's a golden
1: new opportunity and and just to kind of finish up on what we were saying before sure. cuz I know I was kind of rambling on and got a little sidetracked So post so, so rates crashed after 2008 yes before then as you imply I lived through many interest rate cycles I lived through them in the 1980s where rates mm-hmm. went from nothing to double digits in the late 70s, which I watched because if you remember, I'm just a teenager, but I'm already <laughs> investing in an ounce of gold. Right. I'm already following all this. I'm already fascinated by it. Actually, when rates shot up, I actually locked in some fixed income for a few years at 13 to 15%. Wow. And it was very exciting. And at that time, you didn't know that that was temporary. You, didn't, you know, We never know how long the current situation is going to last or what it really means. So that was exciting. I didn't buy any 30-year stuff cuz I'm in my early 20s and 30 years seem like, you know, a million years into the future. Uh but I have run across quite a few people that gobbled up 12, 13, 14% treasuries for 30 years back in the early 80s. So um that was around and anyway, so the zero interest rate environment that your generation and even my generation, David, um like 15 years ago, when there were rates like now, I was in my late 40s. I had already acquired a decent amount of money, not retirement money, but a decent amount of money. And I was risk averse. So my plan had been earn money. Part of it goes directly into mutual funds. The rest of it goes into fixed income. It's going to kick out six, seven, eight percent. I'm going to take that six, seven, eight percent and reinvest that into stock funds and let it grow, grow, grow. And someday I won't have to work like a slave anymore. So um, somewhere along the route, that that path, I hit critical mass where I'm not a zillionaire. I'm not living on my own private island. I don't drive a six-figured valued car. You know, I, I don't live that. I, I would say I'm more like the millionaire next door. And um, which, again, if you think about what I was saying, I'm the little kid that saved my allowance. I'm right. still the little kid that saves his allowance. Um money is security to me money is not anything more i feel like it, it it gives me a level of security um and so you know money's different things to different people at any rate post interest rate plunge like there aren't that many people my age that even knew what interest rates were and had money to put into fixed income got it because even now, most people in their 40s or even 50s have not always saved that much money. They're behind the curve on their their retirement plan. So yes, there's a whole lost generation. as a gener- at least one generation, if not a generation and a half of people who have no knowledge of this. And um, I was pretty adept back in the days of Greenspan. He'd plunge the Fed funds rate down to three, and then he'd jack it back up to six, and he'd rush it down to two and a half, and back up to six. And I just would cycle that. And when he pushed it high and it went to six and CDs were paying seven, seven and a half, eight 8%, I'd gobble them up. And then I'd put them in two or three year maturities, rates would fall, rates would go back. And I would just wait and I'd put it in money market and I'd make some investments into REITs or whatever I found as an opportunity to always a value seeker. In hindsight, I was always a value seeker. I'm not a momentum guy. I'm not a hot stock chaser guy. I'm a value seeker. So um that just all played into what I was doing, the whole big picture. Fast forward to after 2008 and nine when rates got squashed to zero forever, basically until 2018 when the Fed attempted to, to lift rates, which it did pretty successfully until the latter part of 2018 when right. the market said enough of this. Yeah, we're not we're not putting up with it anymore and the market had a horrific bout of downward move. And the Fed flinched and dropped rates way back down again, and then kind of raised them a little bit. And then here comes COVID, where they get squashed down to zero again, where they stay for years. So all throughout that, there was no money market to park your money. Yeah, you can park it and earn 0.1 or 0.01, or there's a place to park your money, but there's no yield to be earned. So stocks were the only game in town. This whole thing where back in the day, you'd put X amount in stocks and X amount in bonds and the older you got, the less percentage you had in stocks and the more you put in bonds to keep your net worth stable as you approach that retirement age. It became BS. And I ran around for years telling people, please don't put your money in bonds. And if you put them in bonds, for God's sakes, don't put them in mutual funds, put them in actual bonds, where if they go against you, you can hold them to maturity and get your capital back. It's a dynamic I won't go into too much. But when you put your money in a bond fund, as many of your listeners who are listening to this have done, and in a low in- interest rate environment, and then rates take off like a rocket ship, you know, twenty twenty two, the the stock market was down twenty five percent. I'm pretty sure bonds were down like thirty percent. Yeah, was th- bonds were causing the pain because rates were just, you know, th- there was anticip. Well, it, there was pain because the market was overvalued. We won't get into market analysis, but. There's been nowhere constructive to do that. So around April of last year, I started doing a, a T-bill ladder in one month. I just roll one month, one month, one month. What least. was the rate then? Something like two-ish on the Fed funds. Which is
0: which is high. <laughs> which me. was which was
1: high enough for me to start taking. And again, if you think, like I'm starting to pull money out of this real estate, I'm parking it where? I'm parking it in T-bills, and I'm trading it. And I was trading a lot, as I described. At that point, I got up to trading ES. I went from SPY to ES. I didn't do the MES thing at all. And I just kept my ES risk above notional for sure, but not 20 or 30 or 50 times. right.
0: Something reasonable. I,
1: I was more like three to five times above notional. Sure. all the while thinking oh my god my value of account of x if we have a a bombshell event this account's going to blow up and um so that weighed on me over time and over time as more money came in again with my main mission of one don't lose any two earn what you're earning in real estate and three kick it up from there It was just not a time where I wanted to continue trading multiples of the value of money that I was in 11x alone. It was too much emotional risk for me. So that's when I backed off of everything. And by then, of course, rates are rising, rising. I had extended my one month ladder into two. I was doing the four and eight week T-bills. And when the the eight week went down to maturity, I had a four week left that was an eight week and it was a month later and I'd roll it back out to two months. So right. if your people don't know what a ladder is, you basically do that. You establish in different maturities and you just keep going out to the furthest maturity, the farthest maturity. And then as they mature, you just roll that money out and you're just rolling it and rolling it back into your desire. So I, I, as rates went up last year, I stretched it out to a six month. And then this year as rates have gone up even more and I've had more money come in, <clears throat> I have set up my trading account with stacks. And my first stack, I'm backwards, David. When I'm out there in these discords and everyone's trading their, their thing, I'm trying to go to them and say, hey, you have $100,000. you are you're using 40000 for your buying power. You have 60% available for margin expansion. Yeah, that 60% can be put into fixed income. You can put 50% of it and leave 10% in cash, or you can put 55 or 58% into fixed income, whether it's a T-bill or a T-bill ETF. And if you have a margin expansion experience, just sell part of that fixed income. I was showing people how to double dip, how to do your trades and have a return on the fixed income. And I've literally helped hundreds of millions of dollars directly into these In, investments. Into the fixing the market. <laughs> yeah, as well as I don't know how much uh, overall impact. I'm guessing over a half a billion and maybe a billion. I've heard from people on the other side of the planet that have seen my first T-bill video and couldn't thank me enough. And they've seen recent videos and they're like, I had no idea this dynamic. The cash dynamic in a portfolio margin account, a Reg T account, or a span margin account, or a combination thereof, they're different characteristics and money allocation and things to trade depending on what type of account you have and what you're trading. And if you understand your money management skills, you can double dip a little, or you can double dip a lot.
0: Yeah. T-bills only use 1% on portfolio margin; It's basically like Uh, cash.
1: And so it frees up all that buying power to be used on index and equity options, but not futures. Futures mean their own cash. So um, I've, I've been spreading that message quite a bit. It's catching on. The T-bill thing was very slow. I ran around for months saying, hey, I'm doing this. And people like, you know, virtually are pointing and laughing as they walk by. Like, ha, ha, ha. you know, who cares about that little return? And I mean, I kept saying, hey, if I'm targeting a 10% return, I can make an extra 5% for doing nothing, but clicking a button once a month, I'm making 15. So, you know, it's always had value for me. So most people are taking their accounts and they're allocating their cash into some kind of fixed income thing, T-bills, T-notes, T-bill ETFs, and earning it on their edge cash, their bonus cash, their margin expansion cash. And I've just along the way discovered through my um, risk aversive nature and my desire to earn the best return I can with the least amount of risk. I've come up with these different strategies that are very low risk and very low notional, and I know what risk is in my account, and I know what risk is not. so, Uh, In a nutshell, I place my cash into the proper account style type, whether it be portfolio margin or span margin. And um, I do my trades. And my foundation is the T-bill ladder itself. And I have it stretched out to a little over two years now. I have one that matures on the 19th. And I have some that matures all the way out to September of 2025. And pretty much wherever I can get 5%, I'm going out and grabbing it. So his rates have gone up and that that tighter for longer thing has his, his settled into the marketplace. I've been extending my T-bill ladder because as long as I can make 5% on that foundational stack, then I can go sell spy leaps or spy do a spy put campaign. Then I can go do some one, one x uh, if I want to. And those are stack-ons with the risk stacking as I go, like essentially no risk on the T-bill foundation, Essentially, no risk on my SPY campaign the way I'm running it with my very low notional exposure of SPY uh, relative to my it's like I'm at 1x. So if the market blows up, I sell all my fixed income. I buy a whole bunch of SPY 26% down. I start selling calls on it or manage it however I want to manage it. Um, So.
0: I'm looking at the curve now, the 20 years at 4.92. That's crazy. So
1: Yeah, so it is crazy. And, uh, and again, David, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I do have some pages. Normally when I do this type of conversation in a video chat, I go through all the different little websites of things that I look at. So you're looking at the yield curve, probably at home.treasury.gov, but you can look at your own site. Yeah, um, I, I usually
0: go to the US Treasury Yield dot com. OK, I don't know who set that up, but apparently it's been getting a lot either. of traffic because they're adding more features on. it. Yeah, so it must be so, getting a lot of eyeballs.
1: So, so that's what I've been doing. And so I've been nibbling on the two year and a little beyond because it got up there to five percent. I have eyeballed the 20 year, which popped above five percent for two or three weeks, uh, maybe a little more. I mean, just a short period of time. And now it's back just below it as of yesterday. I see we're selling off in the bond market. I believe today we were earlier. Yes, we are still down about two-thirds of a point on ZB, the long bond. So those rates will be ticking up. What happened after Powell? So yeah, so I'm all about proper cash allocation into the correct account and maximizing my cash into fixed income just to have that stack at maximum performance. And then I build everything on top of that.
0: So something I wanted to ask you about, because- for us again, and then me, I want to
1: talk to you about the higher for longer.
0: Thing. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, that's part of it. Because for me, coming from this generation of no interest rate, and then the the, the reason we even got into it because you know we we do like zero DTE, so our account just in cash, and for like the longest mm-hmm. time, the cash was doing nothing, right? right. And and that we knew kind of. The interest rates were starting to go up in 2022 but one day I started seeing in the account interest I was like hey <laughs> we're earning interest now right it's interesting and we look mm-hmm. at the the bills and all that and right now we're doing the six month ladder and, and I don't know how we decide on six months uh, I th- I think because we didn't want the duration risk necessarily um yeah. in, in this in this fund we're running yes. so we just chose six months when we figured okay we'll just do the six month ladder so we're tranching yeah. and you know and <laughs> this and that well but do you think like, cause you mentioned earlier about the fact that you don't know the future and risk, right. Right? the, the, the rates can go up, they can go down. Yes. And how do you think about strategizing? Like, you know, should we buy a little bit of the 20 year or a little bit of the, okay. t- I don't know. Like, so how so, do you think about strategizing and do you have certain hurdles? Cause like what if rates go up to 10%, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I don't think right. they will, but like, you know, I can explain you all,
1: all this is baked into my thought process and I'm happy to share. So one, I think you extended out to a six month T-bill ladder because for a while, late la- last year and this year, the one month rate or the four week rate was say four and a half, but the six month rate was at five and a quarter. For a while, you could go out to the six month and earn like 75 to 80 basis points or three quarters.
0: Yeah, it was really inverted. I guess it was, well, maybe it was like it, a sh- it was a, the inflection well, of the curve or something.
1: It, it was a very <laughs> steep curve from the one to six month. And then from six months on, it, the rates would start going down. So there was an intuitive if you were doing a one a one-month or a two-month T bill ladder and you kept looking at those six month rates and you're you're flipping your T bills at four and a quarter, four and a half, and you're like, damn, I can go out to five six months and I can earn five and a half with less work. <laughs> I need to go out and earn that. So that's when I stretched mine out to six months. And and I knew we were still in an interest rate cycle. The the market was st- Steaming hot. Inflation. I mean, inflation was hot. The economy was still hot. Um, Inflation is still pretty warm. The economy is still pretty sturdy, despite these crazy rises in relative interest rates that we've had. So your your T-bill ladder got constructed in six months because it made sense looking at rates. It was easy to see. I need to go out longer and grab that extra money. Okay, so why am I doing a two year? I'm doing a two year because I'm comfortable owning a two year at five percent. Knowing that if inflation goes into another leg up here, the Fed's going to have to raise rates again, even though they know that they're probably completely strangling the economy. Right. If you look at some things like the history of interest rates, um, which <clears> – <throat> where do I find that? Oh, there's a Fed Funds. Uh, it's it's the St. Louis Fed. It's Fred, F-R-E-D. org. Okay. And you can look at the history of the fed funds rate and you can see like ba- back in 79 80 where the fed funds rate went to 20%.
0: What's the granularity? So, Is it daily that they have or how granular can you see it on? Uh, you know,
1: I don't know. This I think it's a daily.
0: Wow. But so you can know. really see kind of follow I just the path. use it
1: for an overall basis to show people where rates were and where they are now. Got it. Cuz you know everyone that's in your seat David, everyone thinks like, "Oh, rates are so high. Rates are now normal." This could literally be the new normal. So I want to mention that. I want to mention my thought process. I go out to two years. There is interest rate risk. A very, uh, misunderstood or completely unknown component is that when in, in, interest rates and bond prices are inversely related. Right. And it's not a causation effect. It's direct. When rates, when bond prices fall, rates go up. It's not bond prices falling, making rates go up, which makes the dollar go up, which makes gold go down. Those are derivative effects. They're 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 uh, uh, one degree or two or three degrees of separation. The interest rate and bond price movement thing is by definition directly tied to each other. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> people don't understand that, and then if they don't understand that, they certainly don't understand the duration or interest rate risk between a one month. T bill and a 30-year treasury. I'm not going to go into that dynamic here. People want to learn, they can come hit me up. You're going to give some information on how to contact me. I'll give myself a plug now. Notional at gmail.com. You'll post that in the link and they can get it later. And, And you know, I can help people to the extent I'm willing to help them. If people want some private tutoring or mentoring, I'm more than happy to share a lot more of the details of what I'm doing. In the meantime, to answer your question, uh, you know I'm looking at that two year, and I've got this ladder built out where I've got a, a one tranche of twelve that matures in, in uh, October. I already had one that matured in early October. I rolled it out. I took some from 2024 that I'd put in at, at, as a tra- as a, a T bill that wasn't paying a coupon. Cash that in and rolled it out to two years to capture a 5% coupon. So I'm actually earning the 5% coupon, which pays twice a year. That's how treasuries pay, the T-notes and T-bills. I haven't gone into the dynamic of what is a T-bill, T-note, or T-bond. I could, but I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to waste it on that. So uh, the two years where my dynamic is, if the three-year popped to to 5%, and I see as of yesterday, it's at 473 You know, on a $50,000 tranche, that's only like $125 a year of cash difference. So there's not a lot of difference between four and three quarters and five. So I'm kind of uh, licking my lips thinking maybe I'll go snag some of that. And yes, when the 20 popped up above five, I thought, well, maybe I'll put a tranche or two out there and earn that because rates are eventually going to fall. The economy will eventually falter and the Fed will eventually lower rates. Right now in the marketplace, we've had a critical change in the last month since Powell spoke last. Um, When he spoke last, the market was pricing in about three rate cuts or more for next year. Now I think it's like one. And instead of all of us waiting for the yield curve to uninvert, and I I won't go into a lot of definitional there because, again, time's limited, but people can ask or go do their research on what yield curve inversion is um but everyone's been waiting for the short rates to drop which will lower them below long intermediate longer term rates and therefore uninvert the right. yield curve um and what happened with Powell's speech is there was like a massive apparent epiphany where people actually started believing these 1 to 6 month and 1 year rates are going to stay up here they're not going to drop real soon inflation is persistent the economy is uh ongoing strongly and more uh powerful than the powers that be imagined we haven't squashed inflation down the labor market is still tight we had a a, a strong jobs report last week the jolts report came out and it was a, much stronger than expected um and it's sending the bond, the long the intermediate and long term rates are going higher because intermediate and long-term treasuries are plunging in value, sending those rates higher. But if you look at your yield curve and it's got a historical, I don't know if you're looking at a a, a static one day or it's historical. This page I look at, you can look at the last month, the last year and go back in history and looking day by day. The one to six month rates, even the one, one month to one year rates are basically have done nothing in the last month. They're up or down just a basis point or two. The thirty-year rate has gone from about four point three to four point eight or so. Yeah, that's a pretty big more. rise, right? So the long bond has fallen about twelve to fourteen percent. Surging rates, twelve to fourteen percent. And instead of everyone waiting and expecting short-term rates to finally fall because the Fed's going to take their foot off the gas, those longer-term rates have surged higher. The yield curve is not yet uninverted, but it's a lot flatter than it was. Longer-term rates are still lower than short-term rates. The highest rate across the yield curve today, as of yesterday, is in the four-month. At yeah, I'm looking at that three, and it's and weird because you see that go, hump
0: in the twenty-year. And <laughs> it's a hump
1: from four months out. You know, rates start tailing off, and then you hit, and then they go down, and then they're kind of flat from the two-year out to the thirty, but still the two years higher than thirty. So things are still inverted there may be more pain to come in the intermediate to long term because the market still may be pricing in higher for longer and believing it. And they're not they can't lower the short term rates because they can see they'd be fighting the Fed. So all they can really do is say, we don't like these higher for longer things. We're selling off the long bond. And then, of course, as we have other characteristics unfold, like the, 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 the debt expand, the debt limit debacle that happened in May and June. And then now we're in this um, uh, budget disagreement period where they've extended it and kicked the can down to November. And historically, they do this almost every year. They they argue, they pass a temporary, and then they pass another one or two temporaries. Sometimes we go through almost a whole year without an actual budget in the government. And of course, the government's running budget deficits And a lot of people don't understand this, but that's where the debt, the national debt comes from. When the government has a budget for a one year period and it runs a trillion dollar deficit, the trillion dollars becomes borrowed money that adds to our national debt. So in modern times, they used to run budget deficits to stimulate the economy. The government would spend more money to stimulate the economy. The economy would expand the, the They'd raise rates and slow the economy down. That's that's kind of been the model in modern times. We run trillion-dollar deficits, whether it's under Dems or Republicans. We run trillion-plus-dollar deficits in good times and bad. We run much bigger deficits in bad times. So it's it's not a good situation, and that is causing a little bit of uh, consternation for people in those lower in those longer maturities because. I think people are starting to look in and say, do I want to lock up my money for 10, 20 or 30 years? Where is this crazy debt thing going to go? And and at what point might the U.S. government lose its AAA rating or its ability to actually pay me back my principal that I definitely want back? So there's some higher rates being priced in because our government is not functioning correctly as well, in my opinion, as well as there is a chance we're going to have a 70s style situation where inflation surged. They raised rates. They lowered rates. They lowered rates a little too much too quickly. Inflation surged back and they had to raise rates even higher. So the Fed knows that. The Fed does not want to do that. They'd rather keep bumping it up a little here than cut rates a percent and a year or two from now have to raise them 3% off of that new higher base, if that makes sense. So a lot of dynamic in the marketplace um, there was a big flight to quality with the the un, very unfortunate Middle East situation popping up over the weekend. We had a rally in the bond market futures on Monday. The physical market was closed. There was a big follow through rally uh, on Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. Next Tuesday. Today bond... is
0: October 12th, 2023. So, yeah, yeah. The, the Middle East thing was over the weekend of the 7th and the 8th. And then Tuesday was the 10th of mm-hmm. October.
1: So, so bonds were up almost two points on on Tuesday, and it's when when trouble happens, money moves. Scared money moves out of the market. It moves out of foreign markets. It moves into the U.S. market. It moves into U.S. fixed income because, despite all the issues that we've discussed here and the chaos, we're still triple A rated. We're still the safest credit on the planet that's obtainable in quantity. We're, in other words. People could flood into the Japanese yen because they have huge budget surpluses and all that, blah, 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 whatever. But there's not enough yen for the world to park their currency in. As you probably know, something like 60% of the world's transactions are done in dollars. So there's a huge demand for dollars. Most currencies are weak against the, the dollar on a chronic basis. Even if the dollar were falling, sometimes their currencies are falling more. So a lot of people put their money into U.S. currency physically overseas. There's a lot of physical paper currency circulating the planet and people use that as their reserve currency. So there's a lot of built in structural demand for the U.S. dollar at this point in time that will diminish in the future. But the question is, what's gonna replace it? People are not gonna take their hard earned cash and lock it up in a 30 year Chinese bond because the Chinese are are, are communist and they could say, no go. We're we're changing our mind. They do it all the time. So that's not good. The Eurozone is uh, a a rolling hot mess because it's a bunch of countries hobbled together like the United States of America. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the United Countries of Europe. And the Fed controls the currency for the entire United States because we're a unified country. But in Europe, The ECB, the European Central Bank, is like the Fed equivalent. And they set policy and they set country limits. You can run this much deficit and you can do da 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 da. And you have very fiscally conservative countries like Germany. And you have very aggressive, unfiscally responsible countries like the pig, the pigs, you know, if you've heard of the pigs, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, and Spain, those are the pigs, and and they typically run budget deficits, and their economies aren't too strong. And all those are operating the really sick parts, and the really healthy parts are all operating under the ECB. So it's a hot mess there. They don't quite have the effect on monetary policy there that they do here. And ultimately, each country can do what they want with their own interest rate policy, subject to what the the, the ECB is telling them to do, and they're kind of co- anyway. If, if, it's it's less firm. The Fed here does things, and it does other. It causes things there. It's a little bit fuzzy. So the euro may never be a reasonable store of value compared to the dollar because it has internal nasty dynamics, just like the, the Chinese yuan does, just like the U.S. currency does. As we've spent a lot of time discussing here. However, we are the least sick of all the major players in the world. Swiss franc. Swiss franc used to be backed up by gold. I don't think it is anymore, but it's a rock solid currency. There aren't very many Swiss francs running around. People can't, the world can't go park its currency in the Swiss franc. There's not enough francs for it to be done. So I hope your understanding and your viewers can understand what I'm saying. There's a lot of weird world dynamics, but as sick as the U.S. is, we continue to have a cold while the rest of the world has pneumonia. So until the rest of the world gets healthier, or we become even sicker, the dollar will remain the major store of value for the world and the major currency of transactions uh, until it somehow is displaced at some point in the future that I can't see. I honestly thought decades ago as the deficit grew from a trillion to two trillion to three trillion to five, I'm like, oh my God, at five trillion, all hell's going to break loose. And I'm like, okay, at 10 trillion, all hell's going to break loose. All right. 15 trillion. And then we went from 15 to 20 trillion really fast. And then all this is happening like is the market blows up with the Great Recession. And I learned that, like, you know what, Ed, don't be afraid that people are going to reject paper money or fiat currency because it's just a piece of paper. Honestly, David, my, my conclusion is the vast majority of people wake up, go to work, earn a living, come home, wake up and do it again. They don't have time or knowledge to understand what the paper money system is about. All they know is they need dollars to keep their life running. They are going to keep that model running until it absolutely crashes. So there's a lot of momentum and um, fundamental reasons why the dollar will stay where it is. I believe until our debt gets to some, I can't identify what level. Um, And the world starts saying, no more, we can't take it. And then we're really in trouble because then the world will be dictating what our interest rates are, not so much the Fed with its policy or local big institutional and money market uh, influences in the bond market. It'll be the world deciding what rate it wants to get paid. Because don't forget, we run huge budget deficits here. So countries like Japan, Japan, and China and Vietnam and, all, and, and Thailand and Singapore and a whole bunch of lower cost countries. Uh, South America has a pretty good bit of, of, of production going on. Mexico has a lot of production going on. Anywhere that's got cheaper labor, we have budget uh, uh, trade deficits with. So if we have a trade deficit with someone, that means we're buying more stuff than they're buying from us. And we're therefore shifting more dollars into their world And we're getting product back. So they accumulate hard currency in the form of U.S. dollars. Um, And so you can see where that's going to be hard to perpetuate because what incentive does Mexico say? Hey, U.S., we do all this business with you and we've been doing dollars, but we're starting to get uneasy with you. We want some of our product to be sold in the currency of X. Right. What, what currency is that? Do they want a bunch of Chinese yuan? Do they want a bunch of euros? Probably not. Do they want a bunch of Vietnamese blah, blah, whatever their currency is? No, they do not. You know what I'm saying? Like, There's really no choice for our trade partners who are running deficits with us to trade in anything but dollars because dollars are still like the healthiest thing to park their money in. So you can see the fundamental dynamic there that's at play. It'll change at some point, but I don't know when. Um, One more complex, you know, we can get off of that rabbit hole is when we run a trillion dollar deficit and it makes our our, our debt go up from 32 to 33 trillion and rates are going up, a third of that 33 trillion renews on a yearly basis. They're funding that 33 trillion with about 11 trillion dollars worth of paper money floated and rolled every month. All these things we're buying is the government rolling its massive debt. And instead of them paying 0.08, like they were two years ago, on the one month, they're paying 5.58. So it's costing the government 5.5% more to roll that debt. And that expense, shockingly, David, is part of our national annual budget. So in the budget where they spend on Social Security and Medicare and social services, and the military, and Congress's retirement package, okay? All those things are in there. Also in there is interest on the national debt. So you can see as our national debt grows, the component of the the federal budget interest payment grows. And then as interest rates rise, it makes that rise even more. So there's some structural things going on right now that's making our budget very hard- not to balance because we never balance. I think we balanced once in the nineties, and it's been like fifty years since we've balanced. Besides that, um, but less obnoxious and inflammatory, if you will. All right, back yeah. off. No, the- no. What no, else, Ed, what that else was, do you want to ask me? Mark? That, that was
0: super insightful. That that's exactly the kind of context that uh that I was hoping to get out of the this uh, episode. And unfortunately, we got to wrap up in a little bit. But the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on, and just to for context for the viewers. Um, in spite of all, or I guess in light of all this, do you, some of your decisions on like where to park the cash or when to take opportunities, is this sort of like liability driven? Like if I know my requirement personally is, you know, there's a certain hurdle rate. If I need 5% based on my number of assets, like, mm-hmm. do you have some number in mind? Like, you know, do you say you're eyeing the 20 year? Like if you see certain pockets, like kind of hit that rate, do you mm-hmm. kind of jump on that? It, at times, just to lock in certain tranches, does that kind of play? It play does into your strategy, my
1: mindset, David. Yes, it does. And you know, if the ten-year rate went to like six and a half or seven percent, I'd probably put the vast majority of money in that and continue to sell my spy puts on top of that, and I would just have a longer locked-in period. However, right. it's you got to understand, and you do because you've made comments. I know you get it you have to understand that as you extend the maturity or duration of the bond portfolio that you have you're exposing yourself to more interest rate risk because when rates go when bonds when rates go up existing bond prices are going down making them go up so if you're holding one of those existing bonds and rates are going up cuz bond prices are going down you're incurring a loss on that holding that you already. Yeah, had.
0: mark, mark to mark. So, but I, I, I so guess when I if you're when, okay I, when with I
1: buy it. when I buy a, a, a tranche, we'll call mm-hmm. it, I'm willing and uh, committing myself to saying I'm going to hold that 20 year tranche, and I haven't done 20 yet, but I've done the two, and I'll go to 20 with a tiny piece of it, maybe 10 percent mm-hmm. of my total, if it gets back above five, or maybe around now with it close to five. But I've got to be willing to hold that thing for 20 years. Because you're right, we might go to 7%, we might go to nine or 10%. We don't know what's coming in, in in six months or a year or two years. We don't know if this is the moment in time where the world says enough US, we don't want your cheapy debt anymore. You're gonna have to constantly pay us higher rates. None of us has that crystal ball. We all have a crystal ball on our desk. It's all fuzzy for all of us. We don't have that kind. So when I commit to a tranche, like when I'm doing these two years, I know with almost a hundred percent certainty. In fact, I know with a hundred percent certainty. I don't need that money for two years. I have other maturities in my T bill ladder, T bill T note ladder that are maturing in the interim. I have money in T bill ETFs that I can use for immediate liquidity. And if those funds aren't sufficient enough, I'll just go out and sell whatever the heck I need to sell. And I don't care if I incur a small loss on it, or even a big one if the problem is big enough. Because I have some real life problems that I were I, I was completely unable to foresee. And therefore, again, the shorter the duration, I would be selling my nearer-term ones because they're not taking the interest rate risk if rate hit, if rates have gone up. Whereas if I go in the three-year, the 10-year, 20-year, yeah, I'm getting hit pretty hard. It's a whole new dy- dynamic. We'd have an hour-long conversation for me to properly explain that. So When I pick a tranche, I am mentally committing to that maturity because I know in the interim, if rates go up, that bond price is going to go down and I don't want to sell it at a loss. I just hold it to maturity and get my money back at maturity. Real simple.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like, I honestly, we would love to roll the six month ladder for like four more years at at these yields, but you know, who knows what's going to happen. And it it may be interesting just to, like I said, lock up a piece of it, you know, two year, five year, 10 year. And yes. You kind of know you get that income, you know, that. Year. And David,
1: that's exactly. And that's what I'm doing. It's the same mindset as having a one month and then a two month ladder and then going to six months like you and a lot of people in your room have done. I see everyone doing that. What I'm doing is a little more aggressive because if rates go up, I'm going to take us. If rates go from five to six on the two year maturity, I have to discount my bond by one percent for every year because that's what it does. To right. Make All right. That's a quick overview, but that's how that works. I don't really care. In fact, if you've looked at my commentary is I want rates to go higher. I want my near-term tranches to be invested for a higher rate for longer. And the only way that's going to happen is if rates keep going up. So it doesn't bother me at all if rates keep going up. I realize at some point, at some point, the market may say enough of that, and start correcting like it did in 87. What caused the 87 crash? A strong economy, continually rising interest rates. And then one day the market woke up and said, oops, rates are too high. We're shifting off, like it was just a flood out, okay? So there is a competition between bond yields and stock market. It hasn't existed in your lifetime, but you could say now, if you if you hit the lottery, David, and here comes, I don't know, let's say it's a mini lottery and it's 10 million bucks. You might say, well, hell, I don't know if I want to put the whole $10 million in at 4.6% on the 10-year. I'll make 460000 a year, but I've got $10 million. Is that a good deal? Yeah. You've got to be willing to hold that and be content with it, if you will. Um, so you might say, okay, I want to put some in the market for growth. How much do I put in the market and how much do I put in fixed income? Well, you have a choice because your fixed income is not 10 years at 1.1%, which is a definite joke and not even a thought. (laughs) You're going to dollar cost average into the market. Are you going to drop it all in and run whatever your strategies are or whatever your plan is? There is no choice. Uh, uh, There is no option at all. So there is an option for stocks now, and it's called the fixed income world. The fixed income world is not boring. It's not what your grandma and your grandpa used to do. Notional Ed's running it differently. I use it as a tool to generate my base foundational stack return. And then I stack risk on top of that. Risk being, it's almost like the needs hierarchy, the needs pyramid, if you've seen it. As I go up the ladder to that point, up that hierarchy to the point, my risk is going up. And I run different portfolios. Some are very low risk. Some are more aggressive. And I can, I'm can. i targeting generally a 7 to 11% return in one account. In the other account, I'm shooting for a, an 11 to 16% return. But I could turn that up and get a 16 to 21% return by just adding one campaign of one strategy right. running. But again, going back to the beginning, I'm not doing that quickly. But if the market took a dive and went down to the 38 or 3700 level, and I felt like it was more fundamentally reasonably valued. I would tighten up my tranches on my one, one X. I would, you know, it, that affects me, but when we're way up here and the PE is way up above 20 and rates are super high, it doesn't look like a great environment for me. Want to go all in on equities. All right, I'm going to stop again.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And Ed, this has been super fascinating and uh, really looking forward to to seeing more of your commentary and, uh, you know, interacting with you. And I'm sure everyone else appreciates it in discord. And, uh, no, Thank excited you. for what the future looks like with this new environment. Um, but with that said, uh, I know you mentioned it before, but uh, where can uh, our listeners reach you if they want to connect?
1: Thank you. So again, it's Notional Ed's Journey at gmail.com uh i guess you'll post that in yes the, we'll
0: put that in the show the notes yeah and, and then you're in a number of discord I, so if you're not i mean they're probably discord, familiar they'll know you yeah <laughs> i
1: mean your discord and six others where i drop my content some i'm much more pervasive with my commentary than others i'm not going to mention all the others at this particular point i mentioned one other because that was part of my learning journey i'm still on my learning journey but i you know. I don't know who or how to exactly promote this. So I'm just going to mention that if you have interest in where I hang. Yeah, we'll get
0: your email in the show notes and people can reach out that It's, way, the,
1: it's sure. the email address. And of course, I'm in your Discord. I'm in all these other Discords. Notional Ed. Anyone can type in at Notional Ed and send me a message. The light will pop up. I'll go deal. You know, I'll come to you as quickly as I can. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's not. And uh, depending on what's going on, I'm very willing to help. And explain all of this to people. And um, if people are getting something from this and they're totally confused or baffled, I'm willing to share a little bit of time with them. Gratis. But if they need additional information, I've gotten to the point where I'm really having a lot of demand for more detail and specific account setup. And I'll spend one to three or four hours with people. And it's just been for free, free, free. And I'm kind of finding myself not able to do that anymore. So I'm in the process of morphing my model a little bit into a slight compensation model. But again, I'm here. This is a free podcast. I've, I've spilled the beans on much of what I do and given a lot of the reason behind it. And that might be all a lot of people need. If they need more, NotionalEdsJourney at gmail.com. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, we appreciate the generosity and uh, all the learnings. And uh, we'll see you around. Thanks for being on thank the show, Ed.
1: Thank you, David. I, again, greatly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.